Thank you, Jesus, for promising to send us the Spirit to make manifest all things that the Father has given to you. We pray that you'd open our eyes a little bit more clearly to see you and all of your beauty as we dive deeper into the book of Daniel. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I remember as a kid growing up in Hamburg, Pennsylvania, we had this long road. We lived out in the country, so I got to get on my bike and, and ride uh, as far, well, felt like as far as I wanted as a seven-year-old. It probably wasn't that far at all. It felt like a long road, but I used to like to go down to, I think it was a Lutheran church or something like that at the end of the block, and I'd like to ride around the parking lot, and then I'd come back home. Well, one day, on my way back home, I had to pass by this house where there were some teenage boys there. And these boys, they came out and they began to, I don't know exactly what they were doing, but I felt threatened by it. And there was a little bit of an interchange. And then I took off on my bike as fast as I could to get to my house. And I got to my house and I went up into my room and I ran into my room and I had a pocket knife in my room. And I remember taking that pocket knife and I'm shaking. I'm, I'm scared as far as I remember it. And I'm taking that pocket knife and I go out and I sit down on the front steps of my house and I'm holding this pocket knife, just waiting for those boys to come back by. <laughs> just, just come back by and, and just, just wait. Thinking that, that somehow holding this, this knife in my hands is going to protect me. I'm thankful that they didn't actually come up to my doorstep and test out my knife handling skills because they were not proficient. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Daniel. You know, in the world we're living in today, in all the trouble that we face, in all the insecurity around us, it can, it can be challenging for us not to fear, feel fearful and to lean on a whole lot of other things than Jesus. I know over and over in my life, I've leaned on a lot of things besides Jesus. So we're getting to the second half of Daniel, which is all uh, mainly focused on a couple of visions that Daniel receives. Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, this tells us that this is not in chronological order. He has given us the stories of his life, and now he's diving into what takes place in the first year of who? Belshazzar. So tell me, what story was it that we talked about with Belshazzar? The writing on the wall. Do you remember how we talked about how Belshazzar called a feast with a thousand of his nobles, and who wasn't invited? Daniel. He'd been number one in the kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar for decades. And now the nobles are called together in a time of crisis to have a party, and Daniel's not invited. It gives us the idea that when Belshazzar, Nabonidus' son, took on the co-regency, that things didn't go so well for Daniel. And so, I believe this is key. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, God gives a vision or a dream and a vision to Daniel. You know, in times of transition in our lives, in times of trouble, when things are changing, when we don't understand what's going on, God often shows up to reveal things to us. He did it for Nebuchadnezzar early on in his time reigning in Babylon, and here he shows up to Daniel later in in the kingdom. So Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. These aren't all the details. 
He wants us to get the main facts of the dream. Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, quick uh, uh, look in Bible prophecy. If you look at Daniel, uh, Revelation 17, 15, we find that waters in, in apocalyptic prophecy can represent peoples. And winds in Revelation 7 can represent the winds of strife. And so here you have a picture of a tumultuous sea. Steve this morning in early service told us, I kind of get a picture of what's that like. You know, being out on your, your, your windsurfing, he's a windsurfer, and he said being out there way out in the water when the wind's picking up and the waves are, are there, it, it's kind of a scary feeling. You know, it kind of gives us a picture of what the world is like today. Do you feel like there's strife among the people on the planet today? A little bit. I only see a couple of heads nodding. The rest of us have our head in the sand, and that's probably a good thing right now. Um, so it's a, if you look at world history, think about world history. It, strife with lots of people. This is, this is the reality of what world history is like. And so, so here you have strife among a lot of people. I like how the great controversy summarizes this <clears throat> page, excuse me, page 439. The four winds of heaven striving up the great sea represent the terrible scenes of conquest and revolution by which kingdoms have attained to power. Notice that the terrible scenes of conquest and revolution by which kingdoms have attained to power. What follows in the next few verses are not the heroes of the story. I want you to know that we're going to go through the first part of the vision. And and this tends to be, in my study of it in the past, my main focus. But I have good news for you. The best is yet to come. The best is just after the beast. Check this out. All right, we're going to get into this. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 3 says, And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now we're going to learn later on in Daniel chapter 7, or you can look it up for yourself, that when Daniel asked for the interpretation, he's told that these represent different kings or kingdoms. Four different kings or kingdoms. Does that remind you of anything in Daniel? The statue, we talked about this in Daniel chapter 2. We talked about the head of gold that Nebuchadnezzar was told represented Babylon. The chest and arms of silver, which represented Persia or the Medo-Persian Empire. The thighs of bronze, which represented Greece. And the legs of iron that represented Rome. And the divided Europe represented by the feet of iron and clay. But what was the main point of that vision, that dream? (laughs) It's a rock cut out without hands. And that'll be crucial as we get into Daniel chapter 8. Uh, but, but here we see that this statue, notice something about this statue. What's it standing on? Feet of iron mixed with clay. Melania? Earth. Oh yeah, that's right. There's planet Earth down there. You're exactly right. Good point. I like that. But you see this statue that it's just ready to topple the weakness of its feet. This shows us that the principles of the powers of this world, they don't last. They're ready to topple. They're ready to implode. They're ready to explode. They're ready to, to come to an end. And that is what that vision told us about. So this is a repeat and enlarge of Daniel chapter 2. And you'll see this in the book of Daniel, that it repeats and enlarges the prophecy. So here we go. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 4. The first was like a what? 
a lion, and it had eagle's wings, all right? This represents Babylon. You can even see it. You look up archaeology, a lion with, with wings represented Babylon to themselves, actually. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. How many of you would like to come in contact with a lion outside of a zoo? What is it about a lion that would make it that you wouldn't want to come in contact with it? Its teeth? Yeah. (laughs) Now, a lion, it subsists on killing animals, right? On being able to destroy. It's a predator. It's one of the kings of, of predators. But it has wings like the wings of an eagle. Also, Another keen predator that is, has a wide range and is able to destroy easily, all right? So this is a picture of something unfriendly. Let's put it that way. But suddenly, all right, so there's sudden change that takes place. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. All right, this is the Medes and the Persians and, and, and three ribs. What is, that, what is that picture of a bear? Now, you might think of a bear as less ferocious than a lion, but if it's got three ribs in its teeth, what is it trying to picture here? It's trying to picture a bear that is devouring, a bear that, that has been successful in destroying. And notice how verse 5 continues, And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. It doesn't tell us who's saying this, but it simply says that it's, it was told to it, Arise and devour much flesh. It's this picture of a predator with increasing violence, increasing destruction being wrought by this kingdom. And interestingly enough, the Persians ended up amassing, by the time you get to Darius III, an army of two and a half million men. Two and a half million men. Um, That's pretty amazing for that time period. But here's another amazing thing that they had. This was their scythe chariots. You see these chariots that they had developed? What do they have coming out of the wheel? Sword. They're called scythe chariots because they said if you rode up to the infantry, it would do unkind things to the people in the infantry. Let's just put it that way. It's a little less graphic way of talking about it. They had a way of dominating and controlling the world. The three ribs in the mouth represented Libya and uh, Egypt and Babylon, who were destroyed. Uh, But here you you have um, a succession that continues after this. But what I want you to to keep in mind is that this isn't just succession. There's intensification of principles. They're different principles. They use different ways. And yet, it's really one and the same And that this is how the world does power. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads. And dominion was given to it. Okay, so, have you ever seen a leopard with four heads? Or four wings? The picture is increasing in its unnaturalness. In its... It's viciousness, and it's, it's maybe horrifying nature. And it wants us to get the picture that, that what is taking place in kingdom after kingdom is not the way that God wants the world to operate. It's not his ideal system of government. Instead, this is how the world is being dominated by various kingdoms throughout history. 
This is how the world wields power. The uh, Macedonians were trained by Alexander the Great's uh, father, Philip, and they at first had these seven-foot spears, and they said, this isn't good enough when you're facing people like the Persians who have these massive knives on the side of their chariots. So what do we need to do? Let's develop these long, I forget the exact word for them, but they were 18 to 22-foot-long spears with these sharp iron uh, points on, the, on them that they could use to, to spear the cavalry when they came in and to, to be able to... They were, they were trained in fighting, but it was still an incredible thing. If you read about the Battle of Guagamela, we were talking about it this morning. Alexander the Great had 50,000 men, it's estimated, and he faced... Uh, 250,000 man army that Darius was wielding and yet somehow overcame. It's a pretty amazing story, um, but that's for another time. Um, Verse 7 says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. So we had Greece uh, that was mainly led by the Macedonians who were fighting. They were combined. Um, and then after that, you have the next kingdom. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. Notice how it's described. Dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. What do you notice about this? It's what? It's not definitive. Exactly. Right? Daniel has his, his biological knowledge of categories and beasts and the most ferocious creatures he can come up with. And all of a sudden, he comes to this one and he's like, ah, (laughs) this is horrific. It's dreadful. It's terrible. It's exceedingly strong. He describes the character, but he can't come up with an animal bad enough to put the label on it. He says, I I just, I, I can't come up with a beast for this one. Notice how it continues. It had huge iron teeth. What animal has metal teeth? It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. You see, it's an increasing picture of violence and destruction, the way that the world wields power. Have you ever seen an animal with metal teeth? I hadn't until just this past week. Sometimes when God puts something in front of you, you figure, you know what? We need to talk about this. And maybe this is the picture I need to use for this nondescript beast because I want to introduce you to a blood worm. Thankfully, we live on the West Coast. These are in the East Coast of the United States, in the Northeast of the United States. And these little guys, they look pretty harmless, maybe like worms that you'd use for fishing, but you really don't want to touch these guys. Um, They're pretty ferocious and actually really venomous. But not only that, they have these four fangs that are 10% copper. The highest amount of metal in the teeth or fangs of any animal. And they just found out this year through research the protein that enables this to actually put copper into its teeth. They're pretty fascinating things. So I decided let's use an electron microscope picture of the fangs of a glowworm to give us uh, of a uh, blood blood worm in order to help us imagine what this beast is like, all right? It had a huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. Is this what Rome was like? You know, there was a uh, chieftain by the name of, let's see, his name was Calcagus. I can't even pronounce his name. Anyway, this chieftain that Tacitus writes about in his, his book, he writes and says that when they're in Britain, that this chieftain stirs up his forces 
with this speech. And this is what he says about Rome in the book. To ravage, to slaughter, to usurp under false titles. They call empire, and where they make a desert, they call it peace. Have you ever heard of the Pax Romana? Roman peace that was established that Jesus came and enjoyed this Roman peace? How was it established? It was established by the brute force of the Roman armies. Roman peace established by force. This is how the world wields power. This is how the world defines power. It's a power over structure. It's a power of, I have the bigger guns. I have the knife as I'm sitting on my porch. It's, I have the better words. I have, the, the, I have more money. I have the capacity to dominate. And this is how we expect to establish peace. But we looked at with the statue, remember, that that somehow not just the kingdoms are destroyed, but they're actually all ground into powder by the rock that comes at the end. When we talked about how it's a little bit more difficult to deal with an idea than to just defeat an army. So chapter 7, verse 7 says, It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. Right? You remember the, how many, what do you think were on the feet of that statue? We assume there were 10 toes. It doesn't tell us that. So this, again, you see parallels throughout and a lot of detail here that we're not getting into. Um, if you'd like to study it in more detail, I'd love to have a Bible study with it. I'm sure there's other people here who would love to study it with you in more detail. Notice he says, I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. Now, we're going to come back to this little horn because chapter 8 explains a lot more about the little horn. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Some versions use the word blasphemous. And you see this in context is very clear that the most egregious part of this vision is how the world hijacks the power that is in the name of Jesus to conquer the world. They take the cross and the sword in both hands and they go and they conquer in the name of Jesus and they begin to wield power in a way that is totally contrary to Jesus but do it in the name of Jesus and this becomes the most egregious thing in history. But then notice this. The little horn comes, he's speaking blasphemous words and then it says this, I watched till Now, if you want to take notes in your Bible, circle that word till, if you have that in your Bible. I watched till. That's a key word to understand here. I watched till, meaning I I saw that this is the way history was developing. I saw that this is the chaos on the planet, and and I saw that things are, are a mess in world history. I saw this until... Right, so, so here's the key point. This is the way history goes until something happens. So what is it? What happens? We've got to know what happens. We're going to find a, a repeat of this concept a little bit later on. I watched till what? Thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. Right, so, so here's a picture of purity, of, of, of integrity. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. And his throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. You might say, ah, that sounds a little bit scary. But you have to understand, in context, for them as they're reading this, fire is what you use to burn your trash. Fire is what you use to purify metal. 
fire was a purifying agent. So here when you have a fiery flame, burning fire, this can be seen as a purifying agent, just like the, the clothes are white. It's wheels. Notice the throne has wheels. What, is that, what would that mean to you? A throne having wheels. What was it? That it can move around. This throne has the capacity to move, which is crucial when we understand the sanctuary. But it's also just comforting to Daniel himself as he's in Babylon. And at the time, they looked at gods, not, not that Daniel would, but others looked at gods as localized deities. And his God in Jerusalem, they'd say, well, he's defeated. You have no hope because you're not in Jerusalem. But God's throne has wheels. And I've heard actually that ancient Near Eastern kings would put wheels on their throne so that people could know that they were going to come with them, that they were going to come close to them, that they could move in their judgment, that they could come near where people were. He's a God who is coming close to us. It has wheels of burning fire, okay? A fiery stream issued and came forth from before. So a quick reminder from the Bible. We looked at this a while back. You can look on our YouTube channel or on our podcast the, the sermon on the third angel's message titled, What's in the Mirror? We looked at fire in the Bible. Do you remember the things that fire represented in the Bible? A quiz from like a year and a half ago or so. <laughs> That's not fair, is it? It's not fair at all. Teachers only give you like that quarter or semester. It's got to be within that time frame or you forget it, right? So in the Bible, what are some things fire represents? On Mount Sinai, we find that God gives and he says a fiery law. What does God's law represent it is? A law of love. Right? So, also on Mount Sinai, God's glory is said to be like a consuming fire. God's glory is like a consuming fire. When God revealed his glory to Moses, he said, I'm the Lord God, the Lord merciful and gracious, abounding in goodness and truth. Love. In Song of Solomon 8, verse 6, it's said to be the very flame of the Lord. It's unquenchable. It's stronger than death. What an incredible picture. And finally, Paul says it straight up in Hebrews 12, verse 9. God himself is a consuming fire. The purity, the love that is in God has a fiery aspect to it. That we learn that the saints themselves actually live in the presence of this fire. In fact, notice what is taking place here. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood where? Before him. Where are they standing? What's coming out of the throne? A fiery stream. And here are ten thousands times ten thousand standing right there in the fiery stream. This isn't a picture of attempting to destroy these creatures in particular. This fire will destroy somebody in a minute. But... Here you see that it's, it's, it's not there. And, and let's compare this picture, this picture of thousands and thousands ministering to him, to each of those beasts that come along. How is that different? What does is, what is a predator, uh, think about a male lion. How many other male lions can a, a male lion hang out with usually? There's got to be the one in the pride, right? <laughs> Predators generally don't have a lot of friends. 
And we talked about how for Nebuchadnezzar, he was in the loneliest place in the world. We talked about how the president of the United States might possibly be the loneliest man on the planet. Not the current president, but in general, being in that office. And we, we looked at how people have said that in office in the president. President after president have said that when we looked at Daniel chapter 2. But this is a different type of power. Here you have God on his throne, surrounded by thousands and thousands. And then it uses the biggest number they had in the ancient Near East, 10,000 times 10,000, 100 million. Basically, there's an infinite number of people that are, are just surrounding the throne. And what are they doing? They're ministering to him. There's, there's this community there. There's this togetherness around the throne. They're, they're willingly together. It's, it's the antithesis of this picture of these beasts that are devouring and destroying and, and eating each other up. You know, the, just to put it in our, our modern day perspective, Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 5. He says, you do well if you fulfill the royal law of love, to love your neighbor as yourself. But beware lest you bite and devour one another. <laughs> Beware lest you bite and devour one another. He's talking at that point to the, the Galatian church. It can happen in church that, that we might actually bite and devour each other just like these beasts. Or we can choose to experience what God's kingdom is like, what his royal law of love is like, to love our neighbor as ourself. And we can choose to live in community in such a way that God's grace extends among us and his glory is seen among us. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Why are they all around him? Watch this. The court was seated and the books were opened. You know, this just isn't the way that rulers operate. I mean, we try in a democracy, we try to engage as many people as possible sometimes, but here you have the picture that God wants for willing service. He wants to open the books. He wants for people, he's transparent. It's totally different than the picture of the beast. He's transparent, he's open. He said, hey, here's how I've dealt. Here's what I've done. Here's what's going on. And the judgment does two things. The judgment condemns the way that nations and individuals have wielded power. Right? The, the judgment condemns the way that these beasts have wielded power and the way that we, as individuals, act with beastliness. But the judgment, it will also serve to vindicate the way that God wields power. The court was seated and the books were open. I don't know how you feel about judgment, what emotions go through you, but you can't walk away from Daniel 7 with a negative feeling about judgment. I challenge you to sit down and honestly read the text and to walk away scared of the judgment. I challenge you to sit down and honestly read the text and see what it says about judgment and to think, oh no, the judgment is coming because it's incredibly good news. Somebody should say hallelujah. 
Watch this. This is the best picture I could find. Somebody please paint pictures of the judgment scene. There's a lot of pictures of beasts and no pictures of the judgment scene. This is an old picture, not a great picture, but I want more pictures of what this is about because this is what the vision is about. So the beasts are there. And what takes place? Until... Judgment takes place. The court is seated. The books are open. God's transparency in revealing himself and his actions in human history and revealing the actions of the beast. Verse 21. I was watching. Notice this. So we saw the word till is important there. Now watch this repeated later on as Daniel is recounting. See, see he goes and he asks somebody, what is, the, what is this vision about? And he, the, the guy simply says, well, the beasts are kingdoms, four kingdoms that are going to come. But then the saints will possess the kingdom. And Daniel isn't satisfied. He's like, but, but hang on. I need to know more about this little horn power. And he begins to ask some more about that. He says, I was watching and the same horn was making war, he's telling this, this onlooker, against the saints and prevailing against them. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. <laughs> what incredibly sad news. This tells us that, that he's seeing that, that the saints, they're going to be downtrodden by this power. They're going to be overcome by this power. There's going to be a prevailing that takes place by these evil and hostile powers in the world. And, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I look around and I say, yeah, that's what takes place on this planet. But notice, it doesn't stop there. And prevailing against them, what's the next word? Until, do you get it? First it's till, now it's until. Until what? What is, what is it that changes things? Until the ancient of days came and judgment was made, how? In favor of the saints. <laughs> you didn't get it. It says it's in favor of the saints. You still didn't get it. I can tell by the sad looks on your face. You aren't comprehending what the Bible says. It's in favor of the saints. What is the purpose of the judgment? It's in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. The saints to possess the kingdom? But, okay, in case you're not convinced yet, right? So we had till, until... Now check this out, what the judgment is all about. Verse 25, he shall speak, talking about the, this is the interpretation about the little horn power, which we'll get more into. But for now, we're just going to breeze over it. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, shall intend to change times and law. The, the problem here is it becomes a religious law, just like we saw with Daniel uh, in, in Daniel uh, chapter 6 with, with, with the prayer we talked about last week. Notice, he shall intend to change times and law. What comes next? Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Very important time period that we'll look more into. 1260 years. But, but, the very next word is, is but. Right? So this, this massive time period of the saints going through a horrific time. But, but what? But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. 
The court sits and judgment is given in favor of the saints. It's good news that there is an investigative judgment. It's good news that God is transparent in the way that he deals with humanity. It's incredibly good news. Till, until, but. Three key words that we want to hang on to to recognize the hinge point, the important transformative thing that takes place is God's willingness to open the books. Say, so come to the watching universe. Check it out. This is, this is what's going on. He's, you think about it. If anybody could wield power differently, it would be God. God could just tell us, no, I, I know all the details. I know what's happened. This is terrible. Let me line it out for you. And that's the end of the story. But instead, he invites people to come around him. He opens the book. He invites for investigation. He invites for people to be a part of that process because he wants for us to consent to his leadership. The only one who could force us into obedience says, no, I want for them to love me. And I'm only willing for the service that comes from love. The judgment is good news. It's in favor of the saints. So, what is the content of the judgment? What does it look like? I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words, which the horn was making. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. The principles of this beast power are destroyed by that fiery flame coming out of the throne of God in which these holy beings are happily dwelling. God's glory, God's law, God's love, God himself is a purifying fire in which sin is combustible material. And God's got a problem. You know, it's one thing to come and deal with this this planet and to just wipe it out of existence. But he loves you. And the problem is that, that you and I, we have seeds of the beast in us. <laughs> we have sin in us. And he says, I don't want to destroy that planet because I love them. They have the ideas of this system ingrained in their minds. And I have to deliver them from that. I've got to get rid of an idea, which is harder to do than simply getting rid of an enemy by force. So it's good news. I don't know how many of you are sad about this beast getting thrown to the fire, but I'm thankful that the judgment will take care of this. Eugene H. Peterson said it this way, the worst does not last. Nothing counter to God's justice has any eternity to it. God will work it all out in the end. You can trust him to bring justice to every situation in human history because he's just that good. But verse 13 continues, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. There it is. Did you catch it? One like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. This isn't the second coming. He's coming to God. The Son of Man. Who is that? You know, we could just let Jesus answer for himself. He used the term Christ very sparingly. He used the term Son of God very sparingly. He used the term Messiah very sparingly. You know what term was Jesus' favorite term for himself? The Son of Man. Do you know where every commentator recognizes that I've heard of that that comes from? Daniel chapter 7. Every time Jesus says, 
the Son of Man, over 80 times in the Gospels, the four Gospels, 80 times he refers to himself as the Son of Man. What is he talking about? He's wanting us to think back to this passage. And for so long, all I've known was there was beasts in this chapter. And Jesus wants us to know, I'm the Son of Man. Why is that important? What does that look like? How does that deal with these horrific beast powers? What's important about Jesus being the Son of Man? I was watching the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. They brought him near before him. Just think about the difference. What's the difference between these beasts and one who's like the Son of Man? There's a a world of difference. Everything is different between Jesus and, and all of these massive, horrible actions of these beasts throughout history. Everything is different about Jesus. It's not just that Jesus is going to succeed these kings. It's not just that, that he's more powerful, so he's going to exercise authority in such a way that throughout eternity, his government will be established. He's going to be more powerful throughout eternity because his principles are everlasting and they are non-coercive, self-sacrificing love. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Hallelujah. Jesus will be king forever and ever and ever. In fact, Paul tells us that every knee will bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. One day, Satan's knee is going to bow. One day, every lost person's knee is going to bow. Every righteous person's knee is going to bow to the king of kings in willing acknowledgement that his ways were best. So, here's an example. Jesus talking about the Son of Man. Notice what Jesus says about who is the judge. For the Father judges no one. Who's doing the judging? Is it the Ancient of Days? Not according to Jesus. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now notice why he has committed all judgment to the Son. Watch this, verse 27. And has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. You see, the judgment is in our favor by another human being. There's not just some being out there who says, yeah, I know what you've gone through. No, this is somebody who was born in a stinking stable, who took on human flesh and human bones, who dealt with temptation, who knows what you go through. He's the Son of Man. You know, we need to know He's the Son of God, fully God. In in the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar needed to see the Son of God rescuing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But we need to know He's the Son of Man. That's what Jesus emphasizes the most. He comes close to us. He's one of us. He's united with us with ties that can never, ever be broken. And he is the judge who will give judgment in our favor. For the Son of Man has come to, what does it say? Seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus wanted us to know. The Son of Man, his purpose is to seek and to save that which is lost. The purpose of the judgment, the Son of Man going to reveal what his character is like. 
And it is to seek and to save every lost person possible. Now, Mark chapter 10, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus says, you know, don't wield authority the way that the Gentiles do. They lord it over each other. They have a power over structure of governing. That's how they operate. It's based upon status. It's based upon money. It's based upon power and your, your, your ability to conquer others. But then he goes on to say, you, if you want to be great, serve. In verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that's who sits on the throne, the one who wants to serve you, the one who would wash your feet. He's the Son of Man. Martin Luther King said it this way, I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. This is why right temporarily defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. Unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. And Jesus described what that final moment is going to be like. There's only one time in the Gospels where you have this combination. You have the Son of Man. Jesus describing himself as the Son of Man. You have him coming for the purpose of judgment. You have him sitting on a throne and describing himself as king. Only one time in the Gospels. So you want to know what it looks like? You want to know what's important to Jesus in that moment? Matthew 25, when the Son of Man, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And what is it that He will be looking for in that moment? What is it? When the Son of Man judges, have we fed the hungry? He's going to say, when I was hungry, did you bring me something to eat? When I was thirsty, did you bring me something to drink? When I didn't have a place to stay and was a stranger, did you house me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was in prison, did you visit me? When I was sick, Did you visit me? These are the characteristics that Jesus describes when the Son of Man sits on His throne as King to judge. Now we might say, well, my calling is not on that list, you know? You don't understand. Like, I am called to a higher calling than that. Mount of Blessing, or Desire of Ages, page 637, says it this way. Thus Christ on the Mount of Olives pictured to his disciples the scene of the great judgment day. And he represented its decision as turning upon, how many points? One point. This is important. When the nations are gathered before him, there will be but two classes. And their eternal destiny will be determined by what they have done or have neglected to do for him in the person of the poor. And the suffering. The Bible is so full of this. It keeps coming back over and over and over again. Why is it? Because Jesus is the Son of Man. He's connected with what hurts in humanity. He's connected 
with the pains that we go through. He's connected with the things that, that, that are, are burdening you today. So the first invitation today is to know him as the Son of Man. You know, after Jesus was baptized, went into the wilderness with the wild beasts and defeated the beast Satan in the wilderness, he comes out of the wilderness. What's the first thing that he does? He begins to establish his kingdom by going to a wedding feast and turning water into wine, bringing joy to this wedding feast. And then you find Jesus going around and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he invites people to follow him, to sit at his feet as disciples. He's not amassing an army. He's asking them to sit there and listen to him as he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you were sick, Jesus would touch you and heal you. Just think about Jesus as he's establishing his kingdom. And there's a widow walking out with her dead loved one on a funeral pall. Her son has died. And Jesus can't let that moment go by. He's moved with compassion and touches it. Jesus, who when women are being turned away with their children, he says, no, bring the little children to me. In the temple, when the scribes and the Pharisees want the children to be quiet, Jesus says, no, the the children are here to praise me. Get a picture of a God with arms open wide to those who ethnically were outcasts, who morally were outcasts, who ceremonially were outcasts, the Son of Man came to pull them in, to touch them, to come close to them. And they said, is this guy a friend of sinners and tax collectors and drunkards? What is this guy doing? Friends, that is the character that will withstand the judgment. So as we get to know him, that is everything. As we get to know him as he truly is, it will begin to transform us. And the fruit that it will bear is what we see in Matthew 25. That we will feed the hungry. We will care for those who are thirsty. Clothe the naked. Watch out for the foreigner. We will be there for those in need because Jesus is living in our hearts. Friends, the judgment is in favor of the saints. Those who live an entirely different way than the beasts. And he invites us in. One practical way, I mean, you guys, thank you for being the church that you are. Thank you, Steve, yesterday for opening up your home. Steve had a burrito-making festival yesterday. Some of you were helping him out. I see some of you sitting here that were helping him out making burritos for the homeless. It makes a difference. There's a girl by the name of Tatiana in the riverbed that we're praying for today as they're going with those big, juicy burritos. They love the burritos Steve makes. They're the best. And they're going with the nurse to hopefully help her get a check up because she's pregnant and she needs to get out of the riverbed. Pray for Tatiana. There's some of you that have called and talked to my wife this week and said, you know, how can we get our, our kids more involved in, in helping in some way in our community? There's, there's those of you that showed up for Alice when she needed boxes moved this week. I just sent out a text message and, and too many people showed up. Thank you. Thank you for being there for people. Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. We don't serve in order that we hope somebody notices in order to lift us up. We serve because that is the way up. 
That is the only eternally sustainable principle, the self-sacrificing love of God. So a reminder, if you want to be notified when service opportunities come up, all you have to do is text SERVE to 805-434-1710 or email me. My email is on the back of the bulletin. Just tell, tell me you like to serve and we will enable you to get to know about these things. But most of all, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Get to know him. Get to know how he cares about your every fear, your every pain, your every sorrow. He loves you more than his own existence. And knowing that changes everything. Jesus, thank you for being the Son of Man. Thank you for revealing to us that the chaos and strife on this planet will not last forever. It will last till, it will last until, but there will be judgment in favor of the saints. Thank you, Jesus, for being absolutely everything that we need. Please help us to get to know you. To get to know you in a way that consumes the seeds of beast-like principles that are in our hearts. Father, forgive me for being one of those that bite and devour others. I want your character of love. Please, God more and more in our prayer times, more and more in our Bible studies. Would you give us the desperate plea? Jesus, would you love the world through me just the way that you loved it? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.